Live from Seville, this is The Twilight Show with Harry Waters and you are listening live. Good afternoon, good evening, good night, good day. Hi, hello, how are you? Um, it's nice to see you, hear you and speak to you all. Thank you so much for coming along today. I hope you're all well. I am a little bit cold, which is not something I often say here in Seville. Um, I'm, yeah, it's it's a little bit chilly, which I've, I've been struggling to get used to, but I'll, I'll get there, I'll get there. I, I do have a jacket on and a hat and I'm sitting inside, so I'm sure I'll get there in the end. I've got a, a wonderful show lined up for you today with two fantastic guests, um, one of whom is already sitting in the hot seat, waiting patiently to emerge from the darkness, uh, he says there, with a hilarious drop on on what we're going to be talking about. Uh, but before that, let's have a little update of what's happened in the last week. So in last week's show, uh, we talked to Charlie Jones from Learn Play Nexus, all about his Ufil glue sticks um, and reusable glue sticks, which something I didn't know existed, but then found out they did, which are fantastic. Um, saves a lot of single-use plastic. Oh, I seem to have turned into some kind of poet today. I didn't realize that was possible. Um, what else have I been up to? Oof, other than trying to stay warm, not a lot. Mostly just working and, and writing and, and teaching. And yeah, that's about it really. The daily grind, uh, as as I'm sure most of us call it, uh, that we've, we've all become accustomed to over the years of adulthood. Something I was talking to as well with our guests just before we came on. Um, the issue of becoming an adult, but perhaps not yet growing up, which I'm not sure if it's only me and uh, and my my lovely guest, but I I know that uh, it's it's a symptom among many of us. So a question to anyone out there: um, At what point did you think you had grown up? Um, was it when you became an adult, or are you still waiting to reach uh, the holy grail? And um, I think it's. It was a phrase I use quite often, and that is adulting. Um, and, you know, not something that existed many years ago, because I'm pretty sure our parents actually did grow up. Or was that all just a bit of a facade? I'm not sure. Um, but you know what? I'm going to go on the way I am uh, and just continue with life uh, as happy as Larry. I think I reached about the mental age of 14 and then didn't go any further than that. So, um, whether that's a bad thing, I'm not one to say. My wife could probably update you on that. But, you know, there are certain things that, that I, I do do, but never mind. Um, for example, when I say do do, I still laugh at that because it sounds like I'm talking all about poop. Um, but anyway, <laughs> uh, my guests are waiting in the wings. I will call them in very, very shortly. So hang on to your hats. We'll be back in a couple of moments. Um, but we are going to have a little bit of news, so do hang around. They're coming along very, very soon. Um, so don't go anywhere. Uh, it's going to be mega. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Strike action dominates the news again, with a range of outlets reporting on disputes across England, Wales and Scotland. Whilst the NASUWT union reported 9 out of 10 teachers who voted in a ballot overpay voted in favour of strike action in England and Wales, the union also reported only a 42% turnout. This is below the threshold needed for lawful strike action. The union stated that whilst a strike would now not go ahead, the union remains in formal dispute with the government. The NEU is yet to release the results of its ballot and will also need to reach the 50% member turnout needed for lawful industrial action. In Scotland, the Scottish Secondary Teachers Association has warned of further strike action following walkouts by primary and secondary staff. It says it has no option unless the Scottish Government puts forward a suitable pay offer. The EIS union and Scottish NASUWT members also aim to continue with strike action until an agreement is reached. Scottish Education Secretary Shirley-Anne Somerville maintains that the demand for a 10% pay rise continues to be audible. Meanwhile, the University and College Union has announced 15 new strike days planned across 150 UK universities in February and March. It has said that a pay offer worth between 4 and 5% made during recent talks is not enough, although the group representing university employers says that the offer is actually worth up to 7%. This comes after the government announced that tuition fees in England will be frozen for another two years. Although this is good news for students, the strikes mean more disruption to courses already affected by the pandemic. However, the National Union of Students has been broadly supportive of the industrial action, at least so far. Away from strike action, there have been further stories focusing on what should be taught in schools. This time, the focus is on educating pupils in the dangers of social media in spreading messages that are misogynistic and deeply toxic. The HuffPost website reports on Labour MP Alex Davy-Jones, who called in Parliament for ministers to do more to stamp out Andrew Tate-style misogyny and to stop boys being brainwashed. The MP asked what was being done to tackle radicalisation of young men, but PM Rishi Sunak responded that he was proud that this government launched the world-leading, world-first online safety bill. He also made reference to the autumn statement announcement of £2 billion of extra funding to schools. Although he did not respond with any direct reference to Tate, the online safety bill is expected to complete its final stages in the Commons shortly, before heading to the House of Lords. New figures released recently show that school absences in December were almost double the annual rate and that this was due to illness. The absence rate, as reported in the Evening Standard, was 14.3% across state schools in the week beginning December the 12th, an increase from 7.8% across the year. The Department for Education in England said the increase was due to a rise in sick days as a result of winter illnesses such as flu, as well as COVID-19 and strep A infections such as scarlet fever. In the Channel Island of Jersey, BBC News reports that the government has brought in 11 UK supply teachers to cover for absent staff. The short-term and long-term measures have been put in place due to staffing shortages and the supply teachers will cover for up to two terms. 
short-term housing has been organised for those travelling to the island. The Jersey government said the current vacancy rate for Jersey was 4.3%, but that the long-term plan was to train, recruit, retain and upskill school staff. Finally, the Meanwhile in the Middle East section of the CNN website reports on the United Arab Emirates' plan to become the first Arab nation to teach about the Holocaust in its schools. The move has been praised by some and criticised by others. The nation revealed its plans in a recent tweet and intends to include Holocaust education in both primary and secondary schools. The UAE says it will work with Tel Aviv and Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Jerusalem, to help build the new curriculum. Whilst many see the move as part of the normalisation of relations with Israel, critics suggest that it does not reflect all of those living in the UAE, with many disagreeing with this policy. Full details of the story can be found on the CNN website, with comments on both sides explored in detail. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, let's start the new year with investigating the power of artificial intelligence in education. A lot of people are asking, does your school block chat GPT? First of all, what is it? Chat Generative Pre-trained Transformer, or GPT for short, is a piece of software designed to mimic talking to a person. The difference is, this person is super clever, and it's been trained by thousands of conversations in the past, and it remembers them all. There are lots of chatbots out there. GPT is popular with young people as the answers it gives are not only correct, but can be slightly different each time, so it's more difficult for a teacher to spot a copy and paste homework. Let's put it to the test with a couple of school questions. I'm using a screen reader to represent ChatGPT to give it a voice. Responses are usually in text and appear as if they're being typed really quickly. I asked, what are the registers in a processor? And I got... Registers are a type of memory that is built into the central processing unit, CPU, of a computer. They are used to store data and instructions that the CPU needs to access quickly in order to functions. There are different types of registers, each with a specific purpose. For example, the instruction register stores the current instruction that the CPU is executing, while the program counter register stores the address of the next instruction to be executed. I'll stop GPT there as three paragraphs were given in this answer and it's only a one or two mark question. So I asked, can you tell me in two sentences? And I got... Registers are small, high-speed memory units built into the central processing unit, CPU, of a computer that are used to store data and instructions. They allow the CPU to access and manipulate data and instructions quickly, enabling it to carry out complex tasks at high speeds. Well, thank you, GPT. That's much more to the point. Powerful, right? How about, can you summarise Of Mice and Men? Of Mice and Men is a novella by John Steinbeck, published in 1937. It tells the story of George Milton and Lenny Small, two displaced migrant ranch workers during the Great Depression in California. Despite their apparent differences, the two men are deeply bonded and rely on each other for companionship and support. The novella ends tragically when Lenny, a simple-minded man with a love for soft things, accidentally kills a ranch owner's wife while trying to touch a soft dress, and George is forced to make the difficult decision to euthanize Lenny before he can be punished for the crime. That's fantastic. However, there's some words in there that are quite big, and my teacher would be quite suspicious that I copied and pasted it. So I'll ask, can you summarise Of Mice and Men simply? Of Mice and Men is a story about two ranch workers, George and Lenny, who are travelling together and looking for work during the Great Depression. Lenny is a large, simple-minded man with a love for soft things, and George is his caretaker and protector. Despite their differences, the two men are deeply bonded and rely on each other for companionship and support. However, their relationship is ultimately tested when Lenny accidentally kills a ranch owner's wife, and George is forced to make a difficult decision to protect Lenny from the consequences of his actions. That's more like it. 
Now my homework's done, I think I just bought myself some more time on my games console. As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Thank you very much, Steve. Um, Lots of lovely stuff um, about AI coming out at the moment. I don't know how I feel about it particularly. Um, I'm not as scared of it as some people seem to be. Um, But also, you know, it hasn't taken my job. So, you know, I'm not that bothered at the moment. I do think it can be a wonderful tool and I'm sure it will be. Anyway, back to the show. Now, I picked out a few words in the, the talk there about strike action that struck me as being something that perhaps my students hadn't come across yet. So before I talk more about them, I am going to invite into the studio uh, our guest today. Uh, We've got uh, Richard Chin, who is a teacher, a teacher trainer. He's also an author. Um, And we also have Danny Norrington Davis, who is also a teacher, a teacher trainer and author. So if I could ask the, the gents to unmute themselves, that would be lovely. Hi there, Danny. Hi, hi, Harry. Thank you for inviting us. You're very welcome. I can see Richard's looking desperately for how to unmute himself. So while he's figuring that out, could you tell me a little something about yourself, um, how you um, how you got to where you are today? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, my name's Danny. I'm a, a teacher, teacher trainer and a writer I, and I work at International House London. Um, I started teaching 27 years ago. We were talking before the show, Harry, that the plan was I would you know, do my uh, CELTA, my certificate in language teaching and come out and work in Spain. But that never happened. I ended up pretty much teaching in UK for, for probably about the last 20 years. Um, so I guess really I am where I am by working, by teaching, training and, and you know, sort of being in the classroom and the training room all this time has just given me ideas and and those ideas have been translated into uh, books and uh, books, the books I've written and uh, things like that. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Excellent. Richard seems to have figured it out. He's, uh, he's, he's beaten his, his, um, his nemesis. Uh, Today it's technology. Um, Tomorrow, who knows what it could be. Um, Richard, so Danny. where he is um how did you get to where you are okay so for me um it's a similar kind of journey to danny really um i was uh, originally trained as an actor i didn't have to be a teacher but there's not much work for actors as it turns out uh, and uh, and uh, i did teaching as a stopgap and um you know a lot of it was improvising really because i didn't really know what i was doing at the time. Um, so I did a TEFL course and then I went off um, in South America and Central America and uh, just realized I really like teaching and that's kind of what got me interested in, in taking it up as a career and not wanting to be an actor. But the improvisation bit of it still really interests me. So that's why I uh, I stuck with it. And that's kind of how we ended up 
um, getting interested, well, how I ended up getting interested in emergent language. It's it's funny, actually, that, that whole improvising thing, because, you know, I, I give a course on lesson planning, um, which I do think lesson planning is an important part of it. And when you say improvising, a lot of teachers think suddenly that, oh, if you're improvising, that means you're not planning your lessons. Is that the case? I don't think it is, but you go, Danny. Uh, but no, no, I don't think it is. I think uh, when I work with teachers now, I, I very often suggest to them that they you know, have space for improvisation in lessons um, rather than sort of going in and, and, and trying to sort of do a full improv session, as it were, because I think it will always fly with the students, teachers will feel uncomfortable, and the institution you work in might well frown on, on what you're doing. But I think really when you get students talking, you don't you never really know what they're going to say if you're asking open questions, if you're asking questions you genuinely genuinely want the answer to. Um and that's going to mean that you've got to respond to what they say and how they think and how other people in the room react. So we're always improvising, but I think other teachers don't quite recognise that that's what's happening. Uh, they just think that they're little side moments of listeners rather than big parts I think. Yeah, and I think really, like, sorry, Richard, go ahead. Well, I think it's a really important point that, you know, we, you, know you, you can plan a lesson, but, you know, there's only so much you can plan it because you've got human beings in front of you. Things are never going to go exactly how you planned it. You know, even those lessons that are really slick. And in fact, I kind of worry about the lessons that are planned so tightly that there isn't any room for students to ask questions or for things to, to come up that you didn't expect. And yeah, to, to say that, let's, you know, I'm not saying that every lesson has to be meticulously planned. In fact, um, that's a, a lot of time and it's something yeah. that we don't really have. And when it comes to meticulous planning, oof, I'm not sure the last time I meticulously planned a class. Um, there's something a friend of mine refers to as door handle planning, which uh, is you know, <laughs> as you're opening the door. Now, let, let's be honest, you know, we've all, we've all done that before. Um, and in those situations, perhaps there is a little more improvisation involved. But I think that what, what you guys are, are more focused on um, isn't that whole, let's just go and wing it and see how it goes. It is more um, dealing with what comes up in the lesson. Mm -hmm. And um, so th this idea of, of emergent language, can you describe what it is? Um, so emergent language is language that arises in a lesson when we're focused on meaning something um, and we didn't plan to teach something, but we teach as it comes up because the students need it in order to communicate. And that can be done with the teacher picking what the learner said, putting it up on the board, perhaps exploring it in terms of its meaning, use, form, pronunciation, and then you know checking to see if it's, it's what the learner wants to say. So emergent language is different to you know, the typical thing that we're taught on training courses, which is target language, the language that's in the course book or the language that's in the syllabus that we want the learners to learn, apparently, and take away with them. So that's what emergent language is in our definition. Yeah. And um, within that, we include sort of aspects of emergent language. So what's error dealing with the sort of unexpected errors that come up as students speaking or difficulties are having communicating, getting the message across? But there's also a little moment in lessons where you think, oh, that's interesting. The student said something interesting and let's share this with the rest of the group. Or the time the student will say, and they really think, what does this mean? Or, 
um, I didn't understand this bit. So the little moment where students want to talk about an item of language that perhaps isn't part of the plan. I think that can be a trouble with the plan lesson. A student's reading tests and they ask a question about vocab, and the teacher says, well, don't worry about that at the moment. I've got some language you'll learn. Um, so it's, it's more of an error. It's kind of almost sums down to what everyone thinks is interesting at that particular moment. Okay, now I'm, I'm not sure if it's just me, but there was it seemed you seem to break up in a few moments there. Um, I don't know if it's the the Wi-Fi connection or something like that. I did I did get the gist of it um, of what emerged from what you were saying there. Um, it may have just been my end where it was a wee bit patchy. Um, so I uh, it, it was jumpy according to Pete uh, as well who mentioned right, it in the sorry, chat. So I'm not sure if it's the Wi-Fi or or the. The, the headphones or or one of the live radio issues. You see, we're living on the edge here, guys. You know, anything can happen. I mean, just just to, 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 to follow up from what Danny was saying, then basically, you know, emergent language isn't something weird or different or special actually in a lesson. It's just a normal part of teaching. You know, students ask us things all the time that we didn't plan for. You know, that is emergent. You know, and you know, it might be a case that what you answer you give a learner might be more memorable in that moment because they've asked the question or they've noticed something in a text, or suddenly everybody's focused on something. I was watching um, a class recently, and there was a, a pre-intermediate class, I was watching a CELTA class. So I teach, me and Danny do lots of CELTA and Delta and, and work on MA programs and stuff. And I was watching this class, it's really interesting. Um, this uh, French guy who, um, lovely chap, was trying to, came up with um, a phrase, he said, oh yeah, there's lots of scammers in Paris. Now, the, pre the rest of the pre-intermediate class didn't know the word scammer. So they said it was what, 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 what they wanted to know what it was. And he found it a bit difficult to try and articulate what he meant. And it forced the trainee teacher to then clarify that for the class. So that's an example of, of emergent language. The student was trying to communicate something and use something. He brought the emergent, you know, the, this more complex language to the class that then the other students were then exposed to. Um, so, you know, it's really our job as teachers to mediate that process between what comes up in a lesson. Um, I uh, was I was listening in to the to the radio, obviously, before and the talk, lots of talk of strike action. Um, I don't want to touch on anything sensitive with you guys in the UK at the moment, because um, obviously everyone's on strike. Um, I fully support them. Um, but there were lots of things that emerged from from that that newsreel that I thought, um, would this count as emergent language or would it be target language? So obviously in that moment it came up, but if it's from a listening, is it target language or is it emergent language? I think it, it, it depends really. So if you've got, I, I can't remember the whole, um, the whole um, recording, but you might have, have found a recording about direction and look at maybe planning to or going to, so unions are striking next week, unions are planning a strike. Um, so you're deciding, okay, we'll listen to this text, answer some questions, then I'm going to unpack it for, um, for the grammar of it. That, that might be what the teachers plan to do with it. Um, you might then ask some follow-up questions about the text. For example, have you ever, have you ever been on strike? Have you ever been in a demonstration and a student might say something like oh in in my country and no manifestations um that's why you've got this little blur between target language the, the topic 
is, is striking, demonstrating, um, things like that. But the language that comes from the student interaction could be anything. So it could be manifestation, meaning demonstration, but it could be tense. It could be a missing, you know, an incorrect allocation. It could just be a, a student might say something like, I am, I am a lawyer, we never strike. So the word, the, the, the job mispronounced is, is emergent language. You, you wouldn't have planned to deal with it. It's something that came up as part of the interaction. So there's very often a blur between the two. But really, the the emergency, the unplanned stuff, you 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 don't see it coming, or you only suspect it might appear in the lesson. Excellent. I think you know another example of that as well is you know, um, as Danny saying, you know, if you're dealing with let's say listening text, and suddenly there's a you know the learner didn't hear something, and maybe it's an issue to do with the um, um, connected speech, so it's a decoding issue. So we might stop and we might go back and we might listen to that little segment of text again and again. And that's emergent because you can't necessarily plan that the learners are going to have difficulty with that. It's only maybe in response to the, the questions that you've given them, even, you know, comprehension questions from a book, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, the emergent bit is the bit that you didn't plan to teach or focus on linguistically. Hmm. Now, I know when, when I started teaching um, so many moons ago, um, I, I remember, you know, doing my course and bits and pieces like this and always write your vocabulary up on the board. You know, so it would be the vocabulary section up on the board. And and as I, I matured as a teacher, I got, you know, I went further along and I got a bit obsessed with pronunciation and, you know, I learned phonemic scripts. So what I'd do then would I'd write the word up on the board and I'd write in phonemic script and then I'd put it on the board and maybe i'd tell the students to copy it down at the end of class maybe i'd just kind of write it on the board and hope it you know seeped into their brain through osmosis or something like that um I mostly just wanted to show off that i could write a phonemic script but obviously um but these were the kind of that was it that was this is what you do with emergent language you put it on the board um you maybe write the pronunciation up and at most, maybe the next class we'd come back and we'd review the new language that had come up in class. But, you know, that was kind of really it. How can we avoid this happening? Because it happens so often and I don't think that we're really get, making the most of, of this emergent language. And as you mentioned before, Richard, this is something that our students are interested in because they've said it. So, you know, they want to know what it means. And often it's far more important, that language that's come up than, you know, the 10 words that are in the textbook that, you know, you or I or somebody else has written and think are the important words. I, I totally agree. I mean, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I think about my board work. 10 years ago, what, what a mess. I mean, I just throw, you know, throw stuff up all over the board. The board would be full, but there wasn't really much organization to it. So I think that's something I've certainly worked on over the last 10, 15 years. Um, but I think there, there is a danger that we just throw up a load of language and then you know we expect them by osmosis to remember it. And as we all know, learning a language, it takes a lot more work than just seeing something once. It might be memorable because uh, you know the student finds that interesting. I mean, I've learned some things in Spanish that, you know, I 
that I've learned, you know, the first time I've heard them because they were interesting and they stuck. And other things I've had to work really hard at learning. So I think as teachers, we do need to provide opportunities uh, to revisit the language and, and maybe giving the learners some choice over it as well. So what, one of the things I do is, you know, I have a big column on the side of the board where I put up emergent language. I try not to just put single words. I try to put them in a chunk or look at what collocations go with particular words. So there's a bit of context to it. Uh, and write examples up on the board as well. And then at the end of class, I often say to the students, I say five minutes. I might say, right, look at the, look at the language on the board, make sure you've got a note of it in your books. Um, select five of the items that you think are useful to you. You go home and learn them tomorrow, and you're going to come back and test each other on it. You know, so a simple idea like that where you put the learners in charge of, of what they want to learn, I think is something we can do as well. And then I might, you know, make lexical cards that I bring back into class that got gap fills or jumbles to try and recall some of this high-frequency language that they might find useful. Are there any other things you do, Danny? Yeah, well, I, I, I take photos on my board and then create little quizzes or, or games. For, for I'm doing one on Friday because it will be the second week, end of the second week with my current group of learners. So I do lots of sort of recycling. But I think it's not all about stepping to the board. So to research a book, uh, me, and, me and Richard have been looking at a mission language for about 10 years now. And we started doing some research with our colleague, Nick Anderson at King's in 2018, I think we did it, where we looked at different ways that teachers work with the emergent language. And sometimes it's, it's by saying things like, sorry, what do you mean? So the learner knows there's a communication gap and, and you, you're, you're encouraging the teacher, the student, to close that gap, work out what they, what they said not being understood by others or the teacher maybe suspects it not being understood by others. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean you have to turn the board and deal with it. That's a sort of artifact. But as an event, you can what do you mean? Or, oh, so you're saying dot, dot, dot. Um, I think we also have recasts, especially with pronunciation. So where I talked about um, the student who might say, well, I am a lawyer and we're not, we're not allowed to strike. You might say, oh, you're a lawyer. Oh, I didn't know you couldn't strike. So you're kind of feeding in the language as, as you keep the communication going. So, yeah, it's a lot of it kind of happens and moves move by, but it also sort of shows the learners where the gaps are in different ways. So it, it's really, it's an element of, of, you know, the most complex bit of teaching, which is classroom interaction. So you know, all of the very complex things that are happening between teachers and learners at any moment in the lesson or throughout the lesson, um, this is something that, you know, emergent language is part of. Mm, yeah. now, for me, when, when I, I think of and I look at emergent language, I, now for, for adult learners and for business lessons especially, I think it's something that teachers really need to pay a lot of attention to. I mean, far too often... Um, you know, a teacher will go into a business lesson with their business book and they'll go in to make sure they can teach the present person that day. Um, and then, you know, they'll move off. And, you know, it, in terms of like that kind of level and business level, it's the emergent language surely has to be the focus. You know, it, it, you have to take more, pay more attention to that because it's relevant to that person's life, that person's job, to that person's well-being. I think especially in business, it's sort of executive English, there's a lot of one-to-one. -one. And, and if you spoke to a teacher and said, oh, 
you know, a teacher in that context, oh, we should work with emergent language, they kind of go, well, yes. I think in some, in that context, it's, it's, it's not an uncontroversial thing because they're often, you know, getting students to do presentations or tell us about your company. And, you know, it's very interactive because there's two people in the room. So the interaction's a little bit easier, I guess. You're not making space for other people. Um, so yeah, I think I think in those contexts, it's it's a key part of it. Yeah, yeah. Now I'd like to look at the complete other end of the spectrum. So we've gone from you know we're talking we talked very briefly there about the high end business and how it is very common and and to talk about this emergent language in there. What about when it comes to kids? So I, I have a class of of seven and eight year olds, um, and it's it's quite predictable usually the kind of emergent language that's going to come up. Um, uh, you know, my tooth is wobbling. You know, these kind of things. Uh, you know, it's, it's my cousin's birthday party. These are the things that we, we know are going to come up in class. And and when it comes to to food, for example, we can predict the different uh, things that are going to come up in class. Do you have any advice for for teachers? Because a lot of TEFL teachers kind of have have to start really with kids. You know, I'm not saying it's a it's a bad thing. I love teaching with kids. I've been teaching for 15 years. I still am. Do you have any advice for, for teachers going into that situation? There may be new teachers and they've been thrown into a, a kids class. I'd just like to preface this by the fact that I haven't taught kids for about 15 years or something, and it's not really my area, especially as you thought. I have interviewed people who do uh, to find out about what they do with emergent language. My, my colleague, Katie Kelly, who works in... Spain is a, is a you know, brilliant teacher trainer um, who and I, I we interviewed her for the book and we talked to her about you know how do you see it in class and you know the thing is with teaching kids I, you know it's interesting that, that you create space for things that emerge or predicting what might come up but she said you know what often happens in classes is that you know they're very high structure and by that I mean there's not much room for wiggle in them in the tooth the tooth uh, metaphor but it so, so things are very strict and you know it's about classroom management but the problem is this, the more the managed the classes the less space there is for things to emerge as you've just described i got a, a, um actually it's interesting you're asking this question i got a um message from uh, a former delta trainee from about four or five years ago and i interviewed her at the time about what she does because she was looking into emergent language for one of her delta projects and what she used to do in her lessons at the beginning of all lessons her and the kids, she had quite young kids that she taught in, in the Basque country, I think, or, or France, I can't remember now. And um, they'd sit around in a circle and they'd just have a little bit of a conversation part of the lesson. The first 10 minutes of the lesson was this. And then things would emerge and she'd teach them as they came up. So I think there is room to work with it with younger learners. Clearly, the colleagues that I've spoken to really think that there is scope for it. But I suppose it's, it's, it's you know... Um, not letting your lessons become absolutely controlled uh, to, to, you know, with, within an nth of degree of any, any, any space to work with uh, what might come up. Because, you know, ki kids, kids want to say things, don't they? Exactly. About my exactly. Don't shut up. You know? So there's plenty <laughs> of opportunities to work with stuff that comes up and trans tra translate what's coming up as well. That's another thing that can happen in those classes. Anything to add, Danny, to that at all? Well, we also interviewed a called Yota for the book who, who worked with slightly older kids, so sort of heading into kind of 11, 12 years old, and they very often wanted to, to say things that they wanted to say or how they wanted to say it. So if they have the target language in the book and 
but they say, oh, yes, but how would I say that to my friend? Or um, because it's not spoke the same language, they say, oh, we say this in, in Greek, but how would you say it in English? And so she'd be sort of updating the language that they were learning from the materials, making it more interesting for them. So they will often, younger learners kind of going to say what they want to say very often, and it's kind of one area, I want to say it now. Uh, and you can sort of, you try and get them to chat about the Latin topic and they don't, because they talk about what they want to talk about. So you can harness the topic, harness the topics they want to talk about. Um, you can, I think it's every time you get them to write or tell stories too, it's, that's rich in language. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's really, really interesting because you know your learners as a teacher. Um, now I think that's that's what you've got to consider that you know that the language in the book might not be giving your learners what they want or what they really need. So it's, you know that's where you come in as a teacher to be able to negotiate that with the learners. I'm just going to read a comment that Pete's put in here, and it says. I feel like it depends on the approach, though. For example, my partner is an early years teacher who uses a very child-led approach in a free-flow school. So the communication needed is predictable and learning opportunities emerge from that context. Almost everything emerges as is fed in, not necessarily the case in EFL or young learner context is taught in. So, yeah, as you're just saying there, it is all about the learners and your context. So, um Something, one of the things I've found, so EFL can be very prescribed, you know, because we're trying to get our students to um, reach a certain level or jump through a certain hoop or, you know, to get a certain, um, get a certain, they need to get this certificate by this age. So there's a lot of things that have to be taught, uh, which can shackle some teachers. You know, I understand that that would be a, a reason to shackle some teachers. But it is nice when, you know, teachers take those shackles off. And uh, what I like to, to do with, with our, our classes is that that emergent language, it, is, it does often come from the students. And it isn't just, you know, they want to know how to say tortilla de patatas in English, you know, Spanish omelette. Most of them, most of them want to say that because that tends to be what they ate yesterday or they're going to eat tomorrow. But it's in other areas of, of language that perhaps aren't in course books. You know, you know, how are you? That that traditional question that we ask, mm -hmm. how are you? Now, my students, are, the automatic response is either I'm happy or I'm fine. But then there's a couple of them who just get a bit bored of it. And then like, I don't want to say that. Like, how would I say it in English? You know, and it's like, well, if you were saying it in England, you say, I'm all right. So, so that kind of thing, I think, is it's, it's very easy for us to kind of slide into the classes. That kind of useful, uh, I'm doing inverted commas here, natural language. Mm. And, and, you know, what starts off as emergent, then in later lessons, you, you come back to and you revisit, it becomes maybe part, maybe the target language of, of, of the future, future lessons in some weird way. I think it's exactly exactly what you've described is what Katie Kelly described to me about what the classes that she watches and the classes that she teaches. It's working with 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 the younger learners as they want to say these things. You know. Now you made a great point, Danny, about um, older younger learners, as it were. Mm. So you know, we're looking at our we're looking at our teens and our you know our younger teens up mm. to to teens. Uh, I think for me, this is like one of the, the real key areas to emergent language because these students do want to 
communicate the way they want to communicate. You know, a lot of these uh, these students now they go off online and they mm-hmm. they do gaming online with people you know from other countries and they're speaking English. So so this is the kind of language that that they want to emerge in the class. So they can kind of make that happen. Um, I was wondering if you had any advice uh, for, for what we could do as teachers to kind of encourage this emergent language. When I think it's about, if you are working in a context where there are a few shackles, especially a sort of quite test heavy context, I think what you've got to do is look at the materials you're using and think about how you can exploit them through the types of questions you ask. So, of course, the students are probably going to have to answer true or false questions or multiple choice questions, but then ask students more open questions as well. So do you agree or disagree with the speaker? Um, how much of this is like your You've You've gone quiet, Danny. Yeah, sorry, my... My dad just called, despite instructions not to call. Uh, <laughs> he said we were living on the edge. Can you can hear me? Obviously, um, where where did you get to? Where did I get to? Uh, it was it must it was about twelve or fifteen seconds ago when you were you were talking about um, uh, a way of eliciting students to talk about uh, their ideas. Do they agree or disagree with the the speakers and? Yeah, exactly. So it's about kind of moving away from closed questions. So they might have read a text about that they have to answer exam-focused questions on, but then ask something like, what would happen if this speaker lived in your country? Or what advice would you give to them? So you are, even if you cannot kind of change the topic because the topic is set by the book or maybe even set by the institution, you ask them open questions about it. And and that's when language emerges. Students have agency to kind of answer the the way they want to answer. Because very often the trouble with the materials, it's not just that space for things to emerge. It's the fact that whether you're a 40 year old student in Brazil or a 15 year old student in Thailand, you're basically answering the same, reading the same text and answering the same questions. So, and the answer will, will be the same for each student. So sometimes it's about changing the task rather than the materials, I think. Okay, so yes, uh, uh, rather than, yeah, so we re-guide it in, yeah. so it's into their kind of sphere. And, and yeah, that's, yes, yeah. that's really yeah. useful actually. Um, yeah. it's, really, it's a great bit of food for thought. I think the best advice for teachers in terms of emergent language in general is exactly what Danny's saying, it's the kind of questions that we ask students. So, you know, not you know, even in, in interactions, well, not just the ones we give them at the end of a text, for example. You know, so if you ask questions that, that require you know real questions that require a real answer that the teacher doesn't yeah. know the, doesn't know the answer to rather than these kind of display questions of you know what's the capital of of uh, Peru you know Lima and the teacher knows the answer to these if you ask real meaningful questions then language will emerge and as Danny says the, the questions that you ask you know put some sort of cognitive challenge to the learners so in that way you know you're, you're generating something more meaningful so when we're planning our lessons, a great idea to do beforehand, you know, if we're not going to sit down and write our Delta lesson plans for every single lesson, which <laughs> obviously we're not going to do that. Um, nobody has, 
you know, 27 hours a day to do that for every single one of our lessons. Um, but at least, you know, take a glance over the materials and look for some meaningful questions um, and look deeper into it for something that, you know, we can actually get the students' own opinions from. In that way, we can extrapolate some new language. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it, I can't remember which course book it was, but it was one we were using on a teacher training course. And they had a menu um, in one of the units. And I found it so strange that at no point had the, the course book writer thought, I'm going to ask the people to decide what they would eat off this menu. Oh, so all the questions were things like, how many meat dishes are there? How much is the beef? Uh, and I just thought, why, what would you eat? Yeah, you know, could a vegetarian eat here? Would you bring family here? Would this be a good restaurant for a party? I think, you know, those kinds of questions so much better, so much more interesting. And the students are processing the text as they would in real life. Um, so, yeah, it's well, that kind I know of what thing. I'll be writing. I know what I'll be writing in the next textbook I write. Um, <laughs> there you go. The, when I get to the food section. Thanks very much, Danny. <laughs> Got that one sorted. Um, it's it's a great point though. It's you know as as material writers, it's hard to you know to know because they are these textbooks that will be going into you know mm -hmm. Thailand and Brazil. So we try and keep it as I don't want to say as simple as possible, but as universal as possible. You know, it's, it's something that you know we often have to avoid any com. So I can't hear you, Harry. We can't hear you, Harry. No. You can hear us. <laughs> right. Right. Ah, oh, you're back, you're I back. think. <laughs> oh, no, no, that's me echoing. No, we can't hear you. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, there's a reason why course books are written in a particular way, and it's obviously to make things, you know, safe to be used in different places and different contexts. But then, you know, what we need to think about in teacher training then, teacher education, is how we, we train teachers to be able to modify some of that material. Um, you know, one of the ideas behind this is yeah. more, com more complex thought rather than just, you know, uh, think about Bloom's taxonomy, you know, so you've got a, a, the lower order thinking skills, all the thinking skills are important, but the lower end, just understanding something um, and the different, uh, you know, remembering something as opposed to maybe analyzing or, or evaluating or creating so, you know, if we, if we teach teachers how to uh, make these questions more interesting for students, I think that's probably something we can do to intervene in the, in the gap that we've got. Yeah, think? yeah, I think so, yeah. I think the other thing about uh, having done some work in Turkey, I recognise the fact that the students are being trained to answer certain types of questions because they're in the exam. But I think it's about a sort of a exploitation. Okay idea you know it's okay i will use the text and they will ask the question answer the question set by the book but i'm going to throw in some open questions or evaluative questions or personal response questions so rich you're right we we train our teachers to to think about where they might ask those questions to go with the, the ones the students are being trained to answer um i i think we've lost harry for a bit i've got a question from Pete, Dan, what did it say in the teacher's guide? 
Um, sometimes it doesn't give you the full story. I, I have to admit, I hadn't, I didn't look at the teacher's guide when I was when I was looking at this lesson. But when uh, the teacher who's teaching the lesson, when we were negotiating, the fact that he decided to ask the question, "What would you eat?" I was kind of yes, that that's that's the thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think it's, it's about authenticity as well of task, isn't it, Danny? You know, it's, like, it's, it's um, you know, what would you really, what are some of the things that you'd really do with these things if you if you were doing them in real life? And if the classroom is a, a, a chance to practice some of these things, then it's bringing yeah. those more authentic things that we do with language into class. I know, you know, when I was learning Spanish, not in the classroom, but you know, just just communicating with other people, um, it's very much, you know, I get stuck, and then you you ask for a bit of help. Uh, where necessary, um, and you know, and then a lot of my learnings come through that through actually just interacting and talking to people. Gents, can you hear me again? We can. Excellent. So, um, as I said, we're living on the edge here. I have cancelled our Zoom <laughs> meeting, and I've joined on my phone as a guest uh, because obviously something happened in the studio, um, so we can no longer see each other. Uh, I apologise for that. We've had to go old school. It's almost like we're on the phone. Um, great job there. Um, if you guys are looking for a changing career as a, not a changing career, as, a, as an additional career, then uh, Teachers Talk Radios are always looking for hosts. So, um, yeah, very interesting. I interrupted the most interesting part of the whole session as well. It's terrible of me. I should just go and leave you guys to it. It's okay, no, it's okay because the mild panic was setting in. Um, over here so <laughs> it's all good it's a very good point that, that 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 thing you mentioned there about the the teacher's guide um what did it say in the teacher's guide it, I, now as a as a as a writer myself i've recently written a, a project and i've written the student pack and the teacher's guide and when we got the feedback from the pilot a lot of it was oh well the teachers didn't even look at the teacher's guide um which as a writer, you kind of, you know, slump down in your seat and think, oh, no. But then as a teacher, you think back and think, how often did I look at the teacher's guide? Um, mm. And I wonder if emergent language is something that could be, you know, overlooked by people because they don't approach their, their teacher's guide. I mean, to be honest, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. I can't remember the last time I looked in the teacher's guide. You get so used to the, the, the kind of, as Scott Thornby calls it, you know, a method that is, is put through the course book. You know, we talk about being post-method, but the course book does carry very often a method, a method to it. It's kind of guided discovery after a text and some controlled practice and something slightly freer. Um, so I don't know, really. I mean, I, I mean, I haven't really looked at one for a while, but I, I don't remember seeing anywhere anything. I mean, the term emergent language itself um, you know, is often a bit kind of ambiguous because it was only really introduced with the whole dogma movement. So I've never seen it used in a course book per se, uh, certainly not in a teacher's guide. I don't know about you, Danny. No, not really. Um, or about sort of um, instruction that says if you were to ask this type of question, there will be more space for language to emerge or, or this will take. Mm. So not the words. I mean, I think we'll get in teacher's guides uh, things like this will take the lesson in a freer direction. This will give the students the uh, opportunities to offer opinions. But I think it doesn't quite, I don't know, I've ever seen the idea of what you can do with language that emerges from those freer, freer things, freer moments. So, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think it is that kind of um, 
not fear necessarily, but maybe apprehension to to kind of let the unknown happen. It's it's something that I'm trying to work into to my writing now, and you know, let teachers allow the unknown to happen and and kind of embrace it. Um, now, talking of books, um, I, I don't know how I've managed to go 51 minutes without doing this. Um, <laughs> it's quite rude, I think, uh, to be perfectly honest on my part. But books are great, um, and people who write books are also great. Now, both of you are those people. You've you've written a book, haven't you? Could you tell us what book you've <laughs> written and perhaps tell us maybe what it's about? Can, to, to introduce the book then, can I just pick up on something that you said? And I think this is what, what why we wrote the book, is that it's scary for teachers, especially newer teachers very often, to deal with emergent language when it pops up for lots of reasons. It could be, you know, I, I, I um, did some research with some teachers recently and, you know, they were saying things like, you know, well, I don't, do I have to be a walking dictionary? What, what if I don't know much about the topic? What if I, what if I don't know how to clarify the language? What, you know, what if I look stupid in that moment? So I think there are lots of reasons why teachers find dealing with emergent language challenging. Um, so the reason why we wrote the book um, is because we wanted to address some of these questions because we work on lots of training courses like CELTA, like DELTA, um, MATSOL, and uh, you know, teachers do have concerns, quite valid concerns about improvising in the moment and working with what comes up and reacting to learning as, it, as it's emerging and exploiting, I think Peter used this term earlier on, learning opportunities within a lesson. So that's why we, why we set out to write the book. Have you got anything to add on that, Danny? Yeah, I think in a way we were looking at speeding up a process. We're often told that emergent language is for the, for the pros, for the expert teachers or the, or the experienced teachers. And I, I, I don't really know if that's the case. I think after a time teaching, you, you, you become more interactive, you get better at dealing with what's happening in front of you. But new teachers can do this. Novice teachers can do it. They just need the space to do so. So I think by becoming more aware early on in your career, what emergent language is and how you might deal with it and why you might deal with it and how it can just be little moments. It doesn't have to be whole sort of dogma style lessons. You speed up the process of making teachers much more confident in doing so. Now, um, I, I do have a, a question uh, about more specifically about your book. Um, firstly, the, the most specific of all, what's the title of the book? And <laughs> the next question, where and when can we get it? Um, well, the book is called uh, Working with Emergent Language. Um, we, we've, we've gone simple. Um, so Working with Emergent Language, is, I, I can't remember the tagline, Rich. That's awful, isn't it? Ideas and activities for... Um, can you remember that second part? Developing your skills. Thank you. <laughs> yes. but, but working with emergent language, available through Pavilion. And, and the end of January is, is the date we've been given, um, the latest date we've been given. So hopefully it um, will be out then. And you can buy it through the Pavilion website. You can pre-order copies through the Pavilion website, Pavilion ELT. I'll put the link in the description uh, at the end uh, to let people know. And so it's working with emergent language, which, you know, which what we've been talking about. Uh, 
Are there? Can you give us any hints as to what comes up in the in the book? Any yeah. any secrets to to delving inside? Any yeah, tastes? I mean, a little, little idea about how how the book's organised. The beginning of the book is kind of looking at what is emergent language. Um, how do you work with it? Uh, how do teach? How can teachers work with it? Some of the theory behind it that, that backs up why it's important in the language learning process. So the first bit's kind of more kind of theory of what happens in the classroom, whereas the second bit is self-help book for teachers. So it's, it's a, a big collection of, I think, 20 activities, isn't it, Danny? Uh, with, yes, um, yes. 20 activities where uh, the teachers can try out with themselves, with their colleagues. Uh, trainers can use them on training courses. Um, managers can use them when they're helping their teachers with, with development. But you can certainly do it on your own as well. And what we've got for each of these activities, we've got case studies, a kind of case study, really, a, a yeah, commentary yeah. who tried out some of these activities and what they found. So you can compare your experience with uh, some other teachers on courses that we've worked on or in the staff rooms uh, that, that we've talked to people from. Um, yeah. So that's that's the little bit of book. And then, so, go on, Danny, yeah. Those teachers, the teachers we've taken the case studies from, they range from people who are two weeks into their career um, in fact, that they're still they're in the second week of their SILTA course. Two people mm -hmm. with, with sort of three, four, five, six years experience, and and, and teachers work in different contexts. And the last part of the book is us interviewing experienced teachers in different contexts. So teachers who work with the exam classes, uh, teachers who work with younger learners and uh, teens, uh, teachers who work in challenging circumstances or ESOL. And we ask them how they deal with the language in their context and kind of summarise the ideas. Because we often ask, well, can I do it in exam classes? Uh, can I do it in an English for academic purposes course? And the answer is yes. But we didn't know how, so we asked people who did. So the last part has, has a number of voices other than our own um, saying what they do in these contexts. That is a fantastic point, actually. Now, um, we're going to shoot off for about two minutes. If you can, uh, I'm going to I'm going to pose that question to you for when we come back in two minutes. And that is, you know, if we're in one of these exam classes, so you know the the there's often the the Cambridge first certificate B two exam class or the, all of these different areas. Um, I would like to ask a question about how we could deal with it, um, how we could deal with emergent language in those. So we'll be back in about two minutes. So I've given you a moment to think about that. Uh, and when we come back, uh, we will share our ideas about that. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And, and we are back. So, gentlemen, if you could unmute yourselves. I said two minutes, but it was actually much less than two minutes so they, they may have popped off to fill their glass of water and now they've been surprised that it wasn't actually two minutes it was actually about uh, 38 seconds richard i see you're back yes i'm back um 
Do you want me to start talking? Oh, well, <laughs> so, so, yeah, so your question was about the question was about exam classes. Exam classes now, yeah. um, this is an area where you know teachers are always pushed for time, and and far too often teachers just only focus on the exam, and it's you know it's exam practice mm. now, and this is the vocabulary that could come into the exam, so we're focused only on this. Um, yeah. Not me, because I think that's no, boring. That's... Well, well, it's an, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I mean, I, before I became a, a CELTA trainer, so going back 12, 13 years, I always taught, I, the classes I like the most were, were the exam classes, like S, FCE, AE, those particular. CPE I always found a bit too hard for me, but um, <laughs> CAE I did like a lot. And, and I like um, FCE. Oh, can you hear me? Um, I can, I can. Yeah, so... Um, so for me, I think that there is an issue when we come to exam teaching. I think the problem is, you know, it's the negative washback of only preparing them for the exam and just doing exam practice. You know, and as we know, you know, it only helps them so much. So I do think, you know, if we think about language development, we've got to find bits, parts and lessons. Certainly when you've got students at upper intermediate level where they've got all of that language, they can do all the communication, but they're getting to limits in what they know. So I think, you know, lots of, that, lots of things you can do with some of the exam practice that might be useful. So for one example, you could use, uh, let's take two, two, two similar ones. You could take a bit of a text that you're looking at and you could turn it into a dictogloss and see what emerges out of that. And is everyone familiar with a dictogloss? So it's a time. Oh, look at that. Just as Rich was explaining what a dictogloss was, he cut out oh, sorry, the sorry. timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, you could have a, a short bit of text from one of the readings that you're doing and you read it out at normal speed. The learners note down keywords they hear and then they reconstruct the text. It could be from a text that they've done, uh, you've looked at the day before in class for, let's say, I don't know, uh, a use of English paper or something. So, um, you know, then you see what emerges when they, re when they reconstruct the text. Another one I like is a, a grammaring where you give them content words and they've got to add the grammar back to it. Also very useful for lots of the things that you have to do for FC and CAE. And that's, they're, they're very emergent activities because you don't know. You're pushing the learners to the limit of what they can do. And obviously they're intermediate, uh, upper intermediate or advanced learners. If you push them to the edge of what they can do, then things are going to emerge that are new for them. Like that idea. The, the 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 teacher we interviewed, uh, the teacher we interviewed about exams, a guy called Steve Ferreira who works at International House London, he he talked a lot about exam classes are very very focused. So something like IELTS has always got kind of the environment or or educational technology. So he says what you can do is give little give students these little uh, discussion tasks around the topic and work with the language that emerges, because that language could well be useful in, in future essays. But he also says that when you've got exams that include speaking and writing, assessment criteria is very often looking at things like uh, lexical resources or lexical range or, or fluency. So he explores how he can get students to express ideas more more effectively. Um, so he says a lot, a lot does emerge in an exam class when you when you switch to the skills. And I think it's a really good point Danny's made about the kind of language that you can deal with. You know, obviously those exams they focus on lexicogrammar. So you know, by taking a piece of language and exploring how it works, uh, you know, in in a chunk of language in a sentence, what other words go with it, 
then I think you're providing lots of exposure for the for the students as well. I think yeah. one of the things that's, that you, that you guys have, have really brought to the fore for me um, within this, you know, this phrase emergent language, it's that it is the whole of the language, you know, far too mm. often mm. as teachers, we get stuck on emergent language being this, you know, these individual words, you know, the, these bits of vocabulary that pop up and, and rather than, you know, chunks or phrases or, you know, prepositions that go with certain words like, so it is the whole language that emerges rather than just, you know, oh, well, today we talked about a spinny chair or an office chair. And that, that's mm. what comes up on the board, an office chair. That's it. Um, but it is more about, you know, the whole language that goes around it. Absolutely. I've just picked up a, the, what Steve wrote about exams and he gives an example of a a student answering an exam paper that in his country there's a lot of small crimes and so what he did is he he started putting other words on the board like petty crime and and misdemeanor and taught a, a load of new words and then said to the students now rewrite your essays so they're getting the exam practice with, with the lexical resource thrown in it's the whole language yes it's, it's saying what you want to say in other ways and so it doesn't always have to be the teacher reformulating the learner. Yeah. The learners. It can actually be the learners reformulating their own work, certainly with something like writing uh, like that. And I like activities that encourage the learners to reformulate their own work. But, you know, as soon as the learners get the edge of what they know, that's when we can provide them with some input. And then they can augment their own, their, their own choices with it afterwards. It's a bit like, you know, when you do a task, teach task lesson. to do a task, uh, give them some input on language and then get them to redo the same task again. But this time, hopefully, enriching it with, with, with some of the language feedback that they've received. Um, we've just got another comment here from Pete saying, it's it's interesting, I've always thought of Dixaglos as not emergent, only because you as the teacher can anticipate unknown vocab based on your knowledge of the learners. So I think in that sense, it realigns my thinking on what is emergent. It's not 100% something we can't predict, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we can predict it. And that's one of the things that we suggest in the book. You know, so, so let's say you're doing a task with learners. You, you might, you know, the, agreeing and disagreeing. There's probably a stock load of phrases that you've taught to intermediate classes before that you might want to teach the students. Um, the difference with emergent language, you don't set out to teach those forms. Mm -hmm. There's a gap. And then what's necessary for them to maybe complete a task or do something, that's when you feed the language in. So... As Danny said before at the beginning of, of, of this session, um, it, it, there's, a, there's a slight grey area between where it moves. But certainly as teachers with experience of the classroom, we definitely do you know, naturally predict what might come up. Mm. I saw this very interesting sort of dictogloss, sort of dictation activity recently where a teacher did a live listening where they were talking about habits. Uh, so the plan was teaching present simple. That what that. You've just muted yourself, Danny. Oh, oh, Am I back? Am I back? Yeah. My dad, my dad's memory. <laughs> I might have to phone him up and and sort this out. Yeah, he's phoned me twice now under strict instructions not to. Yeah, so I'm doing a sort of dictation dictogloss where the aim of the lesson was eventually to present simple habits. 
uh, likes and dislikes. But the teacher talked about he, that he was good at cooking chili con carne. So he said, I often, I often cook chili con carne. In the breakout room, the students decided that this was chili on conch. He cooked chili on conch, which was one of my favorite bits of emergent language of the year so far. But they thought on conch isn't a word, so they decided it was chili Hong Kong. So it, it must be a kind of a, a Cantonese dish or and the teacher had to sort of that that's what they ended up dealing with for about five minutes, chili con carne. You know, dealing with the mishearing, that was completely unpredictable. So yeah, the has target language has a dictogloss, but something completely yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, I think a gloss definitely can be forms focused if you're teaching the past simple, as Danny says. So I was being videoed uh, teaching class I didn't really know, an intermediate class a, a couple of years ago. We were doing a project at IH, and I did a kind of a kind of dictogloss, so you know, a, a, a text reconstruction activity. And my on um, I think perfect forms. However, the students didn't have a problem with the grammar. They found that quite easy, really, so it's quite underwhelming to them. But what they did interesting in the dictogloss were things like phrasal verbs popped up. that emerge around the topic that might have selected to teach as well. You know, and there can be room for both target language and emergent language in the class. Exactly, yeah. So that, that idea, I heard a laugh when phrasal verbs came up there. Um... Was that was that a deliberate laugh in the background there, Danny? Of phrasal verbs? Is that something? No, that's no I was laughing at Peter's. Uh, sounds like a meaty focus. Oh, okay, you were laughing at the great pun. I thought it was a. I thought it was a. I think it was a laugh at phrasal verbs. No. I imagine when it comes to teaching emergent language, even you know, as a teacher, when when we are up there at the front uh, and teaching our classes, there are times when we. You know, we use an awful lot of phrasal verbs and mm -hmm. you know, perhaps it that's the kind of thing that can really, you know, stump students in, in, a, in a lesson that maybe we, we use some kind of language that they don't know. So it emerges from us as teachers, not and not as much from the students. I think, you know, with teachers, we, we notice where there are gaps in the knowledge of the, the, our learners. And, and again, knowing our learners, we might feed things in that we think is useful for them developmentally at that moment when we notice it. Um, so I think it is, it is bi-directional. It's not only from communication breakdowns with the learner, it's actually, you know, if I've got, you know, an advanced class, which, which I, you know, I was often given at IH, you know, they, they can all communicate pretty well. What am I gonna teach them? So actually what I find doing is looking, again, as I think I mentioned before, looking for where, for what they don't know, really, or what mm -hmm. I can give them to extend what they can already do. And that's very much working you know, as it comes up, I don't think I can predict that very often. Yeah, yeah, it's it's giving them options as well. Very often, the the phrasal verb is the the the, the sort of more perhaps the more common way of saying something, where they might use sort of quite formalized language, or quite commonly, they especially Spanish Italian speakers are kind of using a word that's a verb that's the same in their language. That, that you might not use in English. I can't think of an example now, but so the phrasal verb is probably more common or the teachers suspect it's more common. I think that's one thing we have to remember as well. We're very often intuiting what we think is the most useful sort of vocabulary item to give them.
Castigate uh, could be one. Castigate yeah, to tell yeah, someone yeah, else yeah, yeah. as an example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you might say to a student, oh, I'm not sure many people use that word. I think we're more like, I, I might say tell off instead or, or something like that, yeah. But you're not really making the judgment. You're kind of, well, you are making the judgment, I suppose, but you're kind of guessing the most common word. Excellent. Now, I'd like to know, I, I often ask stu uh, students, I'm <laughs> talking so much about students on this, I often ask guests, as you are guests here, not students, um, I ask for lists. Now, I often ask for a top three of something. Now, I'm not going to ask you for your top three list of activities to do when using emergent language, because I'm guessing, as it's emergent language, it depends very much on the situation. <laughs> yes, yes. So choosing your top three is probably important. Um, but could you each come up with one that you uh, would suggest using, you know, suggest with, with people who are coming into, you know, trying to approach the, the emergent language? Is there one kind of go-to activity that they can jump on to kind of get their ball rolling? If people wanted to experiment with, uh, with emergent language, there's one I love, and it's one I learned from Nick Bilber, who runs the Hands Up Project. And it's a really simple activity where you show the learners a picture of two people talking. And I've got a, a, a two kids sitting on a railway line looking quite serious. And then I just get them to say, who are these people? Where are they? What are they talking about? And write their dialogue. So as soon as the learners start producing language that's meaning-focused because it's meaning-focused on the context, then they, then they get to bits where they start saying, teacher, how do I say? Or when they come to, to reading their dialogues back, there are lots of points that, that then the teacher can reformulate um, and provide input for the learners in that way. That's one, that's one activity I use, and it's, it's never failed in about nearly 20 years of teaching. Um, mm. So that's one, one I recommend. How about for you, Danny? I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say images again, because I think to get mm. yourself started, using images is, is such a great idea. I, I have these photos I've drawn. So I've, I've I, I took this activity from something in ELT, the, the ELT journal um, years ago, and I cannot remember who wrote it, but it's a brilliant activity. You draw photographs of events, you tell a story and the students ask you questions, then they draw their own memorable event and prepare to tell the rest of the class. What enables to do is monitor as they draw, asking questions like, oh, what are you drawing? So what happened? They then tell you things and you can upgrade or formulate the language as you're monitoring so that when they share their stories, they're, they're using some of the emergent language and more languages go to emerge food storytelling. Something about memory-related activities, I think, are really great for emergent language because they very often have told those stories before in a second language. So, you know, they're long, they're extended terms, the students are very invested in them, so they're quite rich in language. They're utterly unpredictable. I think mm, so. Totally so. Sorry, Richard, Sorry, I interrupted you there. No, 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 I was going to say, I totally agree with stories. I think stories are just such a great way because they're, they're real, you know, or, or even if they're imagined, uh, the, the, there's that meaning focus I was talking about before. I, I think, yeah, that was the, the, the kind of, uh, the, what I've been getting in general from everything is is that kind of meaning side of things and that, that connection 
with it uh, when it comes to emergent language because it is that that desire to be able to communicate an idea and and as you say when it comes from a memory or or from a picture that they've they've had or they've taken it's often going to be something that our students are, are desperate to use and are desperate to learn so mm-hmm. that's why the the language often often emerges now i've often found in my classes that um, again, going back to exam classes, something that you know are perhaps a necessary evil in a in an ELT teacher's environment. I, I really enjoy them because of that communication level. Um, but the thing I always found where a whole lot of the emergent language came out was in the most contrived of all the situations, and that is the speaking exam. You know, for example, in in the FCE exam where you know they do that thing that you always do down the pub with your mates and they compare two photos. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. It's totally yeah. natural. You know, I, I know why I was always do that down the pub. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> Doing it the other day, weren't we? Comparing and contrasting pictures. Yeah, um, yeah. I found that, that with that, that was where the most emergent language would come out. Um, so I don't know if um, I don't know if it's a tradi- if it's if it's a common thing that when there is that kind of visual stimulus, uh, mm. that that is often something that that encourages it, or if that's just my own personal experience. I think it's something about the the, the sort of unpredictability of it because you've got students from all over the world looking at a picture; they're going to interpret it in different ways. Um, they're going to have different reactions to it. So, um, and we do, I suppose, we do sort of share pictures all the time we just we just do do it in a different way so i think it it is just something that sets something off in in the brain you know when you're sitting on the bus you do see people just scrolling through pictures you know it'd be interesting to know what they're thinking Mm. i think it just it activates your world knowledge doesn't it when you when you Mm. you see when you see an image you know all, all that experience that you've got stored up life experience and uh and it gets a talking point then a reason to, to communicate, I think, in the classroom anyway. You know, we might not do it down the pub, but it certainly mm. gets people talking. Yeah. Another thing mm. I've found really uh, has helped, particularly again, now I'm looking more here at, again, teens and, and uh, adult learners, uh, is when, you know, everybody gets into a TV show. So mm. I remember mm. when Game of Thrones oh. was on, I had, I was teaching secondary school kids um, and, you know, it, after the show every week we'd come in and everyone would talk about it and there would be so much language that came out of this because it's you know it it wasn't from the textbook necessarily it's because it came from real life and it's because it was something they wanted to talk about um is that a, a something teachers could perhaps use to to harness emergent language Definitely. And I mean, I think, you know, if you, if you were to look up the word language in a dictionary, let's take the Oxford English Dictionary there. Like a system, a system for communicating thoughts and feelings about the world, you know, so if we, I think that's what we need to do is to emulate that, that meaning of language in the classroom. So something like that is a perfect opportunity for that. Hmm. Absolutely. I think that disappointment at the ending of Game of Thrones. Yes, Sorry, Daniel, yeah, I interrupted yeah. you. Yeah. I think it's any kind of shared knowledge. So um, at the moment, you know, you'll come into class and uh, you know, the last few weeks I've come into class and there are three students because of bus strikes. And, and you know, I'll, I'll start, I'll say, well, everyone, get, did you guys get in okay? What was it like? 
we're, we're spending a lot of time describing our journeys into work. And a student will say things like, I went to the station and the workers are outside and they're waving paper. They're like, oh, that's that's a picket line. And so there's a lot that you know, I think my students are very well versed with the kind of strike uh, knowledge now, strike Lexis, because it's our shared uh, our shared world at the moment. But when you get a shared TV show, that can be absolutely fantastic because um, it's all you want to talk about. I tried to get them to watch this show called The Traitors recently, but none of them did. It was a real shame because I think that would have been great to talk about. That it is it is great when you can kind of all get on to something. Now, again, with with teenagers, it's it's it's, it's difficult with something like Game of Thrones, which want another another wonderful pun from from Pete Punner there saying yes. snow spoilers, please. Um, oh, I'm to understand the name. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it's tricky sometimes to find that kind of that kind of common. Uh, area mm. because you don't want your teens to, to necessarily advise them to go and watch Game of Thrones. So um, I don't know other areas of uh, what Laura's mentioned: water cooler moments, uh, mm -hmm. great things to bring in. So you know the, oh. the World Cup happened recently um, for right or for wrong, obviously for wrong um, or whatever your opinion may be. Um, but the World Cup happened after much corruption and, and wrongness. Uh, but that was a, a huge topic of, of conversation. And I don't think I've had in my life so much emergent language come out of an event than that. And hmm, no, it was this World Cup where the most I've had the most emergent language come out, I think. Yeah, I had two instances today because we were talking about uh, traditional dress and um, Saudi students were talking about Thobes. And another student said, oh, is that what they put on Messi at the end of the World Cup? They, and, and I can't remember the name now, but a student said, that's not a thobe. It's a, it's a Qatari word for the, for the same sort of outfit. And then another student, but it covered, it covered the picture of Argentina on his top. And then, oh, you mean the emblem, the, the badge. So you know, even today we were emergent, like World Cup related emergent language. Um, because it's so fresh in their minds. Yeah, exactly. Now, now um, Laura's made a point that is a very good point. Um, and as the host, I feel terrible that I haven't brought this point up with, with eight minutes remaining in the show. Um, but she said, I missed the beginning, so apologies if this was covered. It, it wasn't. Um, learners have to trust their teachers will respect and value their contributions when it comes to emergent language. Um how do you feel about well richard said yes good point um but yeah how can we kind of build that that trust and respect um i think you know really listening to your students is the first thing you know listening to what they're saying rather than listening to the mistakes that they're making i think really listening to the content of what they're saying is is absolutely key you know and and um, you know so in that way you're treating them like real people rather than just people that you're going to correct i think that's the first stage to creating that atmosphere you know and if you're really interested in what people have got to say and you're curious about what your students actually think and you treat that seriously i think you know you, you do build a lot of rapport in the classroom in that way hmm. i think also it's really important that they see you thinking about emergent language so when a student's trying to say something at kind of the limit of their capabilities and 
they're kind of struggling, but so are you sometimes as a teacher. So you you might kind of say, oh, well, I think you're trying to, oh, what would be a good word here? You kind of negotiate together. You kind of co-create what the student is trying to say. And so those little moments where you sit back and go, okay, good question. What would be a good word? And they can see you thinking about what they want. I think it's quite nice. Whereas I think when we're too quick to react because we know the answer already, um, students probably feel a little bit like they're in routine. But when they can see you really thinking, OK, how can I help this person? I think that really builds trust. Mm, I agree. I think for, for me, like when it when it comes to emergent language now, Richard touched on it a little bit earlier when he was talking about the different exam classes. And he mentioned proficiency classes. Now, I remember my first ever proficiency class um, and I was terrified, mostly because in the unit, in, in the textbook, there was an entire unit on the subjunctive in English. And I was just like, why on earth would I teach somebody this? Whereas, you know, what it basically was were five or six chunks of language that might emerge and somebody's shoehorned it into a textbook. But I remember the amount of emergent language that came out in there. And I think one of the key trust building moments in that was the I don't know moment from from me as yeah, a teacher. Yeah. Um, mm. Yes, I have. I am proficient in English. Uh, mm. Yes, I'm quite good at speaking English and, and, you know, I can mark according to a mark scheme. But I don't actually know. Um, so let's find out together. Mm, I, I think yeah. that's really important. I, I find that a lot. It comes, it does come with confidence, though. I think that in your teaching, that where you say, "I don't know," and it's like you know, go well. Let's have a look at what preposition goes with that verb. Let you know. Let's Google it together and find the most you know what common ones come up. I think that's a you know really nice thing to do together. Is and, and it also thinks good learner training because you show them yeah how to do yeah. themselves as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that was like such a pivotal moment in my in my teaching career and and it had taken until I was you know teaching those levels to be able to admit hey do you know what maybe I don't know and and that's happened an awful lot since then you know when I've admitted that you know maybe I don't know this and I'm not you know the the perfect person that who knows absolutely everything the font of all knowledge yeah. uh, and I think when it comes to building trust building respect uh, within your class yeah, letting them know that maybe you're not perfect, but you can work on it together uh, is is super important. Mm -hmm. My students taught me a word the other day, going goblin. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, they, they said they'd spent, do you know the word? Have you heard it? Well, with goblin mode, it was the, was it? The yeah, goblin mode. Yes, year, yeah. That's right. Yeah. They, so they'd read it before I had. And and so, yeah, if you, if you kind of have this... Um, uh, curious you you're encouraging sort of curiosity in your learners they go off looking for things and they come in and say oh i saw this sign and uh, i read this and um i'd seen goblin mode but i'd never heard going goblin um she, oh no he's gone goblin oh, and i wow, thought oh yeah. that it was nice i liked it a little bit more than the the goblin mode one it is one of the beautiful things about um like, well the way language is and particularly the way it is at the moment with you know the internet and, and the, the way language evolves and there are so many new words that are coming out there that are literally emerging not only in the classroom but it does kind of give particularly our, our younger students that opportunity yeah. to be the teacher to the teacher because the teacher yeah, might yeah. not have heard about you know a, a certain phrase or something and 
And it, it does give them the opportunity to stand up there and say, so going goblin is when, um, you know, mm-hmm. end up. But it's also, also sort of Englishes that come from their languages. So a Japanese guy told me today that when we when in english you say there's plenty more fish in the sea they they would say that it, there's there's there are more stars in the don't worry there are more stars in the sky and he said could you say that and i said well you should be able to say that because it's much nicer it is isn't um, it yeah 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 though then another student said yes but it's yeah. hard to catch a star so so it kind of allows other Englishes. if well the all the Englishes can come out. It doesn't have to be for one place, one expert, I think. I prefer the stars in the sky because we can't overfish that. Yes. <laughs> plenty more fish in the sea for now. For um, now, yes. But, yeah, yeah. But yeah. there won't be soon. <laughs> Maybe if you go to a fish farm, then they'll just be <laughs> covered in disease. Anyway, let's. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll leave sea spiracy out of this one for now. Um, mm. Gentlemen, um, this has been. It's been wonderful. Uh, it was an excellent, a wonderful technical hitch halfway through there. You did brilliantly. As I say, a future in radio hosting for you two is certainly on the cards. Um, so I'd like to say thank you again. Um, I'd like to encourage everybody to um, to follow both of these lovely gentlemen. So where can they follow you? Uh, Richard, would you like to go first? Yeah, uh, you can follow me on um, uh, LinkedIn or on Facebook, a bit slightly harder to find on Facebook, but certainly follow me on LinkedIn. It'd be lovely to hear what you do in your classes and to let you know, to, if, you, if you have a look at our book, uh, do let us know what you think of it. Um, for me, you can, you can get access to some sort of talks and slides on my WordPress um, site, which is just my name, Danny Norrington Davis. Danny Norrington Davis. WordPress, that, that's it. LinkedIn as well. Um, you could try and find me on Facebook, but I don't think I've posted anything for about eight months. So um, you might be wasting your time with that one. But LinkedIn, um, I'm a lot more active. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'll put the, I'll put the link yeah, to really WordPress in the, um, in, in the description box. Uh, I am on it in this exact moment right now. So oh, I'll share that on there for any listeners to to jump in and have lovely a thank you and thank you. the book is coming out soon um Next at the end of, of weeks, january yeah. 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 just had an email today at the end of january so um hey. for them we've been waiting a little while but um thanks so much for having us on the show it's been really great talking to you yeah loved it thank, yeah, you. Loved it. thank you brilliant it's been an absolute pleasure and thank you everybody for listening and for your contributions i will hear you again next week um thank you very much everybody i'll see you later Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.